All right. Hello, everyone. This is What's New in Adapted Physical Education, bringing you a new and exciting episode on a brand new mic that's a lot more costly than my last few mics. So hopefully this is sounding like picturesque <laughs> right now. I have uh, two great scholars, researchers, teachers, uh, people in the field of adapted physical activity. Uh, and they are both at the UW or University of Wisconsin-Madison in the great state, obviously at Wisconsin because it's the University of Wisconsin. And uh, we have, yeah, and to talk about their research, which is broadly around parent interventions to help their children with disabilities learn skills and, uh, and knowledge to kind of help promote physical activity and motor skills. So uh, we have Dr. Luis Columna, um, who's also a Texas Women's University graduate, uh, fellow graduate. So welcome, Luis. And we have his former doctoral student um, and now a postdoc research fellow in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at UW-Madison, Laura uh, Prito. Feel yeah. free to correct me. Yeah, Laura Prieto, yeah. All right. And I apologize, I have a Detroit uh, Midwest accent, which is not basically is the worst uh, thing to have when communicating with anybody uh, with another accent or uh, language. So I have a Puerto Rican accent, so we are even. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so... Uh, I appreciate you both being on the show. I think you both have been on the podcast, but I think it's been quite some time now. Um, and so with that, if you both want to just briefly talk about who you are and and, uh, and fit yourself a little bit and how you got into the space and field of adapted physical activity. All right. Um, so I'm originally from Bogota, Colombia, and I grew up in Las Vegas, Nevada. And I got into adaptive physical activity via dance. Like I love dancing. Um, it was my passion and it continues to be. And when I was an undergraduate student, I was a McNair scholar, which helps um, individuals who are um, underrepresented in higher education and research to pursue doctoral degrees. And so I reached out to Dr. Columna and from there um, really started to learn more about what is adapted physical activity um, as well as how to work with uh, children, autistic children, children with visual impairments, and also, and more importantly for me at, at that moment, working with their parents. And so I'm originally from Puerto Rico. I've always been involved in sport. I was a long jumper back in college. Um, I went to TWU to do my PhD, and my advisor were running intervention, physical activity intervention at the time for Latino um kids who were obese or overweight. And as you know, TWU has a long-standing reputation about APE. So long story short, I moved to Cortland, started doing a lot of qualitative research, um, interview with teachers and stuff like that. Moved to Syracuse, that's where I learned how to do intervention. And we started to meet, to interview parents and listening to their stories. And that led me to create big families and here in Wisconsin. So, so with that, uh, we'll talk a little bit about Fit Families uh, first and like kind of how that project has originated. Uh, and, and, and just so the audience is clear, I'm doing a little bit of work around Fit Families now, too, uh, which so I, I've, I've seen, you know, it's 
it's uh, in action to some degree. And also uh, I can see why it's so valuable. So with that, um, and I guess broadly, I'll just say that Fit Families is a kind of a workshop-based intervention for parents where they get information about different skills and such. And then sometimes uh, as well, this, um, we have students, college students working with the kids with autism or autistic children or kids with disabilities, I think generally as well, to work on fundamental motor skills and increase physical activity levels. Uh, with that, um, please like kind of fill in the blanks of additional details about Fit Families. And then also like tell us a little bit about why that project started um, and why you found it to be important to start. So after I graduated, I continued doing interviews with Latino families and, and, and white families of kids with disabilities about physical activities and barriers and facilitators to physical activity. And one thing that we learned is that while they love physical activity, they didn't know how to do it. So one time we were doing a, a program for, for parents and one mother told us that she appreciated the lessons that she learned because it's not the same reading about physical activity versus actually doing it. So then with that, we developed the first big families in Syracuse for kids with visual impairments. Um, we taught the parents how to play with the kids, how to do physical activity with them. And then we evolved from visual impairment to start doing the program for kids with autism. You know, a lot of trial and errors in that process. Then until now that we just developed a multi-site story with you and Syracuse, um, about kids with developmental disabilities, because some of the activities that we do for kids with autism are applicable for Down syndrome, kids with Down syndrome or or ADHD, so on and so forth. So, so that's how just by listening to the participants, that's how we came up with the idea. And a follow up on that, you know, you said you started with kids with visual impairment or. Um, and uh, children with autism kind of veered into that realm for autistic children. Um, what what led you to make that shift as well as why did you choose those kind of two different groups? Um, visual impairment started because there was a call for a proposal, to be honest with you, like they want a program for kids with visual impairment. So they had the connection, okay, so let's, let's do it, right? So. But then moving from visual impairment to autism stemmed from the fact that it was getting a little bit difficult to recruit more kids with, with visual impairment where I was. And, and the limited funding, we had limited funding. So then I decided to play around with the idea, okay, can we do this with autism? So we changed everything, the structure. The framework was the same, but we changed the content. And, and, and again, that led me to then continue to expand in the program to other populations. And a follow up on that, and then also kind of getting into the content then, uh, because I know that you you offer you offer a variety of topics and you also provide, which I think is really unique. You provide um, specialized equipment on that stuff as they're kind of progressing through the workshop. So you have specialized equipment that kind of goes with each of those workshops, which I think is like really, really great. You get that very relevant, very meaningful. They can apply things immediately. Um but with that, I, I'm actually really curious as to what topics and workshops um, you have now, but also I, I'm just curious as like what, I, you know, what shift did you make from that, that the visual impairment um, workshops to autism? And, and I'm just curious about that. Okay, so for visual impairment, we have four workshops, orientation and mobility, 
uh, physical motor development, physical activity, and sport, and aquatics. I'm sorry. Orientation and mobility, physical activity, and sport, and aquatics. Those were the topics. So why those physical activity and sport? Because they like those activities. Orientation and mobility, because you need to learn how to navigate the environment if you are visually impaired. And aquatics, because it's the number one activity for people with visual impairment. Then when we transition to autism, we focus on sensory motor activities, communication, physical activity, and, and sport and aquatics. Why? Sensory motor activities and communication, because those are the hallmark of the disability. Physical activity and sports, because they lack those opportunities. And aquatics, because drowning is the number one cause of death among kids with autism. So I partnered with Dr. Um, Monica Leport, and she helped us to do the, the activities, um, the aquatic activities. And we even wrote a book a while ago on, on it's an assessment-based uh, curriculum. So um, really cool. But yeah, in, in essence, we tailor the programs based on the need of the population. So the, the easy thing to do when the multi-site study that we did was that the needs of kids with autism are very similar to the needs of kids with Down syndrome or ADHD somehow. You know? So that transition was easy to make. And can you just like go a little bit deeper too into like those workshops? Because I think that's like really, really um, unique in what you're doing. Like what like who's leading those those workshops? Like kind of um is it like is there discussion in there? I'm just I'm curious as to what what do those look like? So depending on the topic, uh, we identify experts in in those area or people who are knowledgeable that that have similar philosophy than than we have and and they go do a lecture with the families. The kids go with my students do other type of, of um activities similar to what we do what they would do in, in PE. And then the panel learning the topic, we teach them, we arrange the full workshop based on the 13 locomotor skills identified on the PGMD third edition. But also we incorporate physical activities, right? We make the connection about fundamental fundamental motor skills and physical activity. Parents learn that then the second part, the parents get to practice whatever we taught them with the kids. And, and then at the end of the day, they go home with equipment, we develop an app. That, that match those activities that they're going to be doing and, and that's how it came up. And then having amazing graduate students up you to run the program. So love is the product of that. So. Yeah, and I think um, you, you're obviously, and we'll, we'll talk, uh, well, let's talk first then about the parents um, and, and the impact for the parents of these workshops and also, um, let's start there. Like what are the general impacts that we see for the parents well, uh, for this programming. Yeah, so um, really thinking about um, awareness, awareness of what their child can do. And we saw this both in the FIT families for parents of children with visual impairments, as well as parents of children who have autism or autistic children. And um, that's like a huge thing. Like they had never seen their child engage um, in, in a physical activity or hit the ball the first time with a bat. And that was a huge experience for them. So really that awareness. Another thing is the advocacy. So um, how can we advocate for uh, the programs that we need to see in the community? So for example, um, in the FIT families for children with visual impairments, they said, wow, I didn't know my daughter loved swimming so much. 
And then when they went to go and look into the community, um, they weren't finding those programs. And so they're like, okay, well, how then can we learn to advocate? So not only was, oh, I can see what my daughter can do, but it was also now, how can I advocate? And really that kind of sparked the fire. Uh, well, we hope to that it continues to spark the fire for parents. And more importantly too, they learned the skills to teach these motor skills. So I don't know about you, but when I, um, you know, while parents are children's first teachers, the first time I teach something, I'm not very good at it. <laughs> and I need to practice it and I need to learn better ways and different strategies on how to do it. So that's the same thing for parents. And, you know, that they're managing so many other things. Physical activity many times is not the focus. And so having dedicated time hearing from experts and also hearing from other parents on strategies like, oh, I use this one tool, I use this one uh, game in my basement or outside. And like, th that's um, really where I see a lot of the benefit that parents get from the workshops in the program. A lot of things I recently have seen um, and uh, come up is just like, you know, recently from talking to other people and such is, and, and getting reviewer feedback is uh, that idea that you just brought up, which is competing interest of parents. Um, you know, often when a parent has a child with a disability, it seems like, you know, I'm a parent, I have, I don't have children with disabilities, but I have a lot of competing interests now of what to do and when to do it and all of that. And um, so how do you help them prioritize physical activity as well within um, fit families or what you're doing? So, so we use the theory of plan behavior as a, as a framework, you know, and one of the components is, is attitudes, you know. So parents may have a general understanding about the importance of physical activity, but they sometimes don't know how important it is for their kids. So having that shift in attitudes, you know, and giving them the the competency and the, the confidence that they can do it, touching a little bit on perceiving behavioral control, because some of them say, oh, I'm not a coach, I'm not a teacher, but we can teach them how to do so, you know, and and, and that's the, the thing that we are trying to, to build up on what they know. Yeah, and I also think something we added last that families really cool was the goal setting sheets. So we had parents um, actually set SMART goals um, before the workshop and check in on them throughout the intervention. And I thought that was really uh, helpful because it shows you don't have to make this huge goal. It can be something within your schedule, within your capacity. Going, um, kind of continuing down the line of all the people that are impacted on this, uh, what have you seen are uh, your major findings, major impacts for uh, the disabled children um, and, and purposely using identity first language, but uh, like, what do you uh, see as your kind of the major impacts of your programming and such um, for, for those, for the kids? So in, in terms of the kids, definitely, um, even though that we have not measured it, but you can tell that their self-confidence is improved, you know, there's a, the confidence level, the parents tell us that their behaviors are decreasing sometimes at, at home, but definitely we have seen an increase in their fundamental motor skill. Um, that I believe are a prerequisite for physical activity. Um, so that's in, in short, that's what we, we've seen, you know, and, and in one of the studies that we'll talk to you maybe about is we saw that two years after the program, the parents continue using the equipment and, and, and participating in activities and advocating for the kids, you know, so. Yeah, I would just build off, yeah, the motor skills is one of the 
the improvements that we see within the children who participate. And we have different modalities of the family. So there's the online version and the in-person version. So we do see that um, those improvements in motor skill performance in both groups. Um, so that was really great to see, especially with our pilot trial that we did. So I also know that that's something that has come up sometimes too. So, you know, I think we've kind of inferred that, that motor skill development is important. But um, can you both kind of articulate that a, a little bit clearer too? So, you know, we see increased locomotor skills and, and um, you know, whatever, uh, kicking skills and, and such, these fundamental motor skills. How does that, like, can you articulate a little bit about what that means um, and why that's important for a child to, to kind of gain those skills um, if they don't already have them in their kind of quality of life and life moving forward? Yeah, I, I, and again, I know that there's a lot of disagreement in, in, about this in the in the field. Um, but I, again, I had extremely good PE teachers growing up. Extremely good. They taught me how to move. They, they they did gymnastics. We did score. We did dance. We did a lot of stuff. And because of that, I feel that like I can do any sport that doesn't involve eyes. Very good. So don't ask me to go snowboarding because I tried that like 10 years ago for the first and last time. So I'm not going to do that because in Puerto Rico, we, did, we didn't do anything related to snowboarding or anything. But any other sport, I can fake it and I can do it. You know, like lacrosse, even though like we did a, I never played lacrosse, I'm fat, I can, I can do it a little bit. So if you have that building block of learning how your body can do, when you put all of that together, you'll be more prone to do physical activities, you know? Even running, that even running is a locomotive skill. If you don't know how to run, then how are you gonna be able to to, to do other activities? Like activities like skipping. You need to learn how to move both sides of the body. In my opinion, that is that could help you to ride a bike if you want to. You know, but again, I don't have the evidence to say that there's a correlation between skipping and riding a bike. But to me it's common sense. I also uh, think that when we look, just like Dr. Columna was saying about he had really good PE teachers that helped him feel confident performing skills. I myself uh, was in dance, but did not feel confident throwing a ball or did not feel confident dribbling a basketball. And so for me, at least from my perspective, those weren't options for engaging in physical activity. While I was like, I would run when I was in elementary school and now that's one of my main forms of physical activity. So of course, like we don't have, this is anecdotal data, um, but something to consider, like just feeling good that you can accomplish something. And that's what we saw from the parents that they were aware and they were more confident in teaching. Now, moving forward, then how are the children feeling about developing those skills? And we started doing a couple of interviews with um, the children in the program. And so that's something that, yeah, I would love to see continue as well. I think it makes a lot of sense. And I, I have seen, you know, I, I know the dad is a little mixed on some like that, the physical activity and motor skill uh, correlations, but, you know, I think there generally is a consensus that it does matter. Um, I think I just saw the other day, Stone from South Carolina, I think that he just published a paper about fundamental motor skill and, and or kicking and physical, uh, kicking and soccer, or fundamental motor skill and physical, something along those lines. I'm pretty sure that I have not read the paper, but I think I saw something along those lines. Yeah, um, I, I do also remember Ellie Bryan was on our podcast years ago, but it was a really great one. And it was called something like Houston, we have a, a movement problem. 
And uh, she talked about studies they did where they did a TGMD test with preschoolers in America and then ones in Europe. And the European ones that often early childhood um, PE and physical activity interventions are a daily or weekly thing where ours are not and much higher uh, motor skills across. And what was crazy, they had much higher motor skills like in sports that um, are not native to them. So they had like a higher um, two handed swing, which is not like something that like students in whatever Norway that she looked at. Um, I'm very, very broadly referencing the study. So If Hallie's students or whoever's listening to this, um, I'm sure there's uh, more specifics in that. Um, but yeah, so, and also I think, you know, I do think also uh, to Lara's uh, point is that um, it's it's a lot about like your self-perception of yourself, right? Like if I'm able to do it, I'm more likely to do it, um, which is also kind of common sense, I think. Um, so The last group then, because you have kind of three groups involved in the FIT families, you have the parents, you have um, the children, and then you also have the college students, uh, which you're like, can you talk a little bit, A, about like um, the training process and their involvement, as well as their overall impact um, or like what, what their impact walking away from the program is for them? Yeah, I, I, will, I will say a little bit, but I will let Laura expand on that because she was in charge of the training of the of the student along with the other graduate student. But but in essence, what we did is we preview what we're going to do in the program. You know, we taught them about teaching skills. For some of them, this was the very first time working with a kid with, with uh, a disability. But they need to have certain attitudes, you know, a certain demeanor, I would say. Um, but the it was a, an intense training, ranging from teaching them how to collect the data, how to do the administer the TGMD, to how to teach and, and become familiar. But the fact that they had access to the app that they could see, they didn't have to come up with the games. The games were already preloaded. So so that's that. But can you explain it? Yeah. So I have a couple things. So first, um, when training them to do the test of gross motor development, both um, administering and scoring it, uh, we worked with them. It was like a couple intensive weeks, like Dr. Columna was saying. And we were really looking at like, okay, do they understand the purpose of the test? Then are they uh, scoring it at an 80% reliability? And um, then they did practice videos uh, with that we had chosen to then see, okay, what are we getting right? What are we getting wrong? What are we looking at when we say this criteria? Is derotate the rotation of this shoulder or that shoulder? Like exactly what is each criteria mean? Um, and then once we went through that, uh, we then did a post-test so using the same reliability videos that are available on the TGMD3 test uh, website. And that really helped us understand like, okay, are they, how, are they able to then score? Then based on that, um, we would either put them into that scoring role or then administer a role if then they would do uh, a practicum essentially looking at how do you administer this just because just because they can score it doesn't mean that they are um, ready to administer the test themselves so that was also another part of the training in addition to that um, we also did so we had weekly lab meetings and in those weekly lab meetings we would prepare all the material that we need for the upcoming workshop so that would include all the documents the the parents and children needed, but then we'd also have a debrief afterwards. So there was always things that came up that were completely unexpected. And so then how then do we work with behavior management? How do then do we work with 
maybe um, the the child that they're working in isn't learning the skill or they're having really a hard time with a certain criteria. So those debrief sessions were, were guided by a lot of the literature and the information we got from physical education, from Dr. Columna, and working with each other to build those strategies. I remember a student, it was really awesome to see, we were working with social stories and her her, uh, her child that she was working with just needed to be running. So it was a running across the whole space. And she's like, we have to figure out how to um, help him focus on the activities that we're working on. So she worked with the parent, and this is something we, we talked about. She worked with the parents um, to figure out what his likes and dislikes were, created a social story with that parent about, okay, how are we going to show that these are the tasks that we're going to do in that moment? then created that social story, showed it to the child, edited it, so then each workshop it improved. And this was a beautiful social story with an astronaut and like, how do you put on the astronaut clothes? And then how then do we like move into these different um, spaces? And so the training was uh, iterative, right? We kept doing it throughout the program because that's the program itself. We're learning from each other and we're also learning um, with the children that we're working with, yeah. For for the undergrad students that you're working with as well, like, do you know, um, like, is there like kind of long term, like, so they leave your class or they leave the project? Um, have you seen like any of them, I don't know, gain interest or anything like that? Or like, how do you see the long term impact for that group of students? So, I think the students who work in fixed family, I want to say a big percentage of the student ended up going to graduate school. Um, going to medical school, and when they talk to the interviews, either as a PT or an OT, when they talk about fit families, that open doors. Because even though we are not trained OTs or PTs, some of the behaviors or the disposition that we teach them are very comparable what OT and PT do. So they that opened the door for them. So kind of going to like the last or kind of big questions now of big picture things. So, you know, I know you have a lot of ideas moving forward with Fit Families and how you expand it. Um, you know, when people listen to this podcast, you know, most of them are not going to be in Wisconsin or New Hampshire or wherever, you know, we have all over the place, right? So, you know, what does this mean to them, right? What does this mean? And so how do you see this program um, expanding? Uh, and then also like, if I'm a AP teacher listening to this, like, what can I take away from what I'm listening to in this podcast um, in my own practice or thoughts? For PE teacher, I would say they need to communicate with the parents and give them ideas what to do, you know, and and, and not doesn't need to be anything fancy. You can, Now with the technology, record yourself. This is what we're going to do next week. Practice this activity with the kids. That's that. So one of the things that we see ourselves doing is is expanding this to Spanish communities. And, and as you know, um, I, I'm, I'm a Latino and and I feel like the need to provide to, to the community. And, and in academia, as you also know, that there's not that many people who look like me uh, in our field, like, but then I feel like it's our responsibility to to deliver for that community. So so very soon you're gonna see a lot of great things coming to our, from our lab related to the Latino community. So I think you're looking at expanding as well, right? So are you looking at also different places? Like, is this going to be expanding in that way as well? Or should I, is this like a secret? 
No, as you know, so we we have got the idea of of continue to expand it, and, and but I, I didn't want to expand something until I knew that have an impact or, or or an effect, you know. So I knew that the program makes sense, but I wanted to make sure that okay, we actually can improve motor skills, you know, and 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 we are planning to continue to expand it to to other states, to other universities, including yours, you know, so we can expand it. Um, but it, it take a village. It's not just expanding. You need to have good connection with the people that you're going to work. Yeah. yeah. And I would also say, like, every community has different needs. So then, like, adapting, adapting it to that community takes a lot of work and a lot of um, engagement with them, even before just saying, oh, we have this program. Like, let's do this in your community. And so... Um, I would love to see EFIT families expand. I think there's a, a lot of value within including parents and also um, finding strategies on how to include parents. Like talking about APE teachers, uh, there's a lot that goes on in that job. And I'm sure like, okay, then I also have to talk to the parents. Like, how am I gonna talk to the parents and what are some strategies I can use? And I think there's a lot of um, possibility there with the families too. Um, going back real quickly too, cause you're saying like, you know, like you have to know the the places that you're going and and such, and the strategies. Going back, you, you know, you said as well that you're really focused on kind of giving back to like your your community of uh like being a Latino American um and such and and like what specific like um what specific barriers then would and such would 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 you need to know about um to work with those different communities with kids with disabilities. Definitely funding is the main issue, you know, so you need to have the funding to be able to run a program like this. Um, yeah. While even though we try to make it very inexpensive, but still there's some funding that that is required to run a program, and particularly if you want to do a large randomized control trial, so you need money to be able to do it. So working with universities that have the capa capacity to, to train students, like, University have an AP program would be ideal place to to start, and even they don't need to be research university, but they have they need to have a, a, a long traditional preparing PE teachers. You know that that would be very advantageous. I also think um, off that line of funding, like funding for uh, students for staff that can help uh, with the interpretation with the translation because that is a lot of work. And many times I think it's like, oh, you're bilingual, you can also translate that, but that takes a, a lot of time, a lot of dedication. Um, and on top of that, like when we had a, a family in the last bit families, uh, the mom only spoke Spanish. So we had a student do live in, um, I'm gonna submit live interpretation would be translation, translation in, during the workshop. And I think that's what we could do at that moment, but then thinking strategically, okay, then who needs to be there so that everyone can have that information in real time? Do we have a Spanish speaker and an English speaker? Like, what does that look like? And thinking with the team and the location that you're working with um, to make that possible. Yeah, I was kind of thinking um, uh, just from my own novice mind although when i lived in detroit um we have one of the biggest arabic populations actually i think it's dearborn is the biggest arabic population outside of the middle east and so we worked with that group quite a bit and they had very unique kind of barriers and often it was language based and then 
them just often perceiving that things would not be accessible for them um, was often a thing that we would see with that group is that they just would assume that nobody would be able to speak their language. And so then they just assumed it wouldn't be accessible for them. I don't know if that's also something that you've seen, but. Yeah. Um, I would also think about like having a community champion there. So if someone has done the program and they found it uh, very helpful, then they can also think like it is accessible. This is why it's accessible. How can we um, bring individuals like me to this program as well? Um, so I think that's part of it as well. I don't know. No, and I think it's, it's, that's why it's important to be talking to them to see what accommodation they need, you know, uh, before you start a program. Not, don't assume that they need this and they need that because not all Latino parents need the information translated into Spanish. Many of them are bilingual. So just ask them and they will tell you. Absolutely. I, yeah. I would also say like beyond language, um, what types of activities are they interested in? Um, do they want different uh, types of music or different types of activities that include more than the parent or include the siblings or, you know, asking those questions are really helpful. So you know exactly what that family needs in that moment, in that intervention. One of the things that you brought up about the translation, I just was in a meeting. So uh, in, I was in a meeting in Northern New Hampshire. So New Hampshire is on the border of uh, Quebec on the very top of us. And, um, and so we had some people that only spoke French in our, our meeting. And, um, I just, I was really like actually blown away cause I didn't know this, but zoom now offers like a free, you can press a button and get a translation service. So they had somebody on the other line translating in real time for that person. And it was like a service that they offered. I don't know if you're aware of that, but I just saw that like three weeks ago for the first time. And there's literally like a button in the Zoom stuff that allows you to do that. So I was pretty impressed by that. Yeah, no, they, they have that feature in Spanish too. I have a friend that was using it um, the other day. So I don't know the accurate the accuracy of it. I haven't seen it in action, but but I'm glad that they have that, you know. No idea. <laughs> yeah, I also think like beyond again, beyond language, how are you connecting? Because if I am in a in a meeting and everything's being translated to me, so I'm already trying to understand what is happening, then beyond that, how are, how are you connecting beyond that yeah. language? Yeah, absolutely. I used to, I had, when I was teaching, I had a bunch of, as I said, a bunch of uh, Arabic students and um, we, and we uniquely, um, like we didn't have like anybody that spoke their language in our school because they all spoke kind of separate languages too. So um, I would put stuff in the Google Translate and give it to them. And he would always like laugh at me basically because it like would come out to be like, you know, like not meaningless almost, I think, uh, when I would ask him or something. Um, but yeah, uh, obviously, I, you know, I think that's like, that's always like the teaching strategy that I always push to my students is that everyone, you build a relationship like, and that goes with like disability, right? Like we'll teach about social stories and about visuals and so on and so forth. But the end of the day, the first strategy before you go to any of those strategies is that you build a relationship and you know, the person and their needs. And I think that's like, that's probably like for everybody, um, like teaching colleagues and whatever. It's like, before you start going into like all the like, whatever, uh, different groups and such that you're going to do things. It's all about actually knowing that person, what they need. Yeah. So with that, I appreciate your time. I appreciate 
uh, your wisdom and sharing your programming and all your great research. Is there anything else that you all would like to share with our uh, our audience? Thank you for what you do, Scott, and, and for giving us the opportunity to talk to your audience. And 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 this is very valuable information. So you can people who don't have access to higher ed sometimes they can have access to it. So thank you for the invitation. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, it's been a pleasure to be on, and I look forward to more conversations. Thanks. Thank you.